You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So, Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. Welcome to our couch. Take a seat. It's time for therapy. Movie therapy. I'm Rafer Guzman, film critic for Newsday. And I'm Kristen Meinzer, culture critic and co-author of How to Be Fine. And we are back together to bring you a very special bonus episode of Movie Therapy, looking back on our favorite movies, of 2021. Woohoo! The team is back together. <laughs> we got the band back together. Yes, yes, we did. Now, note this episode has a bit of an unusual format. It starts with an appearance, Rafer, that you and I recently made on WNYC's The Takeaway. Yes. And when that segment ends, you and I are going to continue the conversation talking about three additional movies each that we loved, as well as maybe one movie that we each were. A little disappointed by this year. (laughs) Sure, a little disappointed, sure. Yeah, yeah. So stay tuned for all that. All right, let's get this bonus episode underway. I'm Alana Casanova-Burgess, in for Melissa Harris-Perry. This is The Takeaway. And here at The Takeaway, talking about our favorite 2021 movies means talking with the team's favorite movie critic duo. Rafer Guzman is a film critic for Newsday, and Kristen Meinzer is a culture critic and author of How to Be Fine. Kristen also told us about going back into public theaters for the first time. I have to say the first time I saw a movie in a theater after the pandemic, I almost cried because I was so grateful to be able to have that communal experience with other people, to emotionally be struck by the same things at the same times on the big screen. You know, for most of the past two years, it's just been me on the couch by myself or me and my husband. So it it really felt special to me the first time I actually stepped into a theater and got to experience that with others. I think I saw Summer of Soul as the first movie in a theater. (gasps) And I just found it to be so transporting. I mean, that documentary is great anyway. It's sort of like being in a concert, which also was an alien feeling that we did not get to have this year. Um, But yeah, it was beautiful. I'd love to see it again just for like editing purposes. What did you think, Kristen? Well, I saw it on the small screen and the whole time I was watching it, I thought, I wish I was seeing this on a big screen because it just feels like a concert experience. The whole thing is essentially uh, the Harlem Music Festival in 1969. Surprise, I must say, when I 
I just thought, oh, I want to be there with Gladys Knight. I want to be there with Stevie Wonder. I want to be there in this crowd with all of these people feeling a sense of community and excitement. Yes, exactly. And dancing. And dancing, yes. especially. Yeah. Yes. So, Rafer, I see that Nightmare Alley was one of your favorite films of the year. That's a Guillermo del Toro movie. People might know his work from Pan's Labyrinth or The Shape of Water. What is Nightmare Alley? I don't know that I've actually heard of it. Well, if you're a, if you're an old movie fan, you might remember the the old version with Tyrone Power. It's an old film noir set set in a carnival. About half of it is set in a carnival. Uh, in this version, it's uh, Bradley Cooper uh, plays a guy named Stanton Carlyle. He's kind of a down and outer. It's post depression, not quite yet World War II. Um, gets a job at this very seedy, disreputable carnival, and he finds out that he's pretty good at being a mentalist, you know, one of these mind reader types, uh, gets this older couple to show him the ropes and teach him this kind of dark art of reading people. And uh, he kind of figures out that he's really good at it, uh, takes his act on the road, becomes a big success, hits the big city. He's got a helper, uh, Rooney Mara named, uh, named Molly, who becomes his kind of uh, showgirl assistant. Uh, now they're in the big cities and they're playing all the best places. And then, of course, Stanton meets his match in uh, Kate Blanchett, who plays Lilith Ritter. And what else is she? She's a psychiatrist. And so the two of these sort of mind readers get together and uh, they get a kind of a racket going, uh, seeing if they can bilk rich people for money. You barely know me. Oh, I know you well. I know. You're no good. And I know that because neither am I. That's the basic gist, based on a novel and sort of a remake of the old film noir. And what did you like about it? Well, I love uh, Guillermo del Toro. I just think he's uh, like one of the greatest filmmakers going. And um, I think, uh, while I will say this is not exactly what you'd call a Christmas movie, uh, it's not really, uh, not really, not really light entertainment. Not what you'd call a feel-good film. It is such a great movie experience. You know, we were just talking about what it's like to be in a theater and see something on the big screen. And Del Toro was so great at that. You know, he he really understands the the subconscious and unconscious power of, of movies and how they work sort of like dreams and fantasies. And there's just all this mm. great symbolism, the carnival rides, uh, the scripts uh, by Del Toro and uh, Kim Morgan is great. All these sort of verbal foreshadowings. Um, and it just unfolds like, uh, I, 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 I'm sorry, I can't think of a better word for it. It just unfolds like a nightmare. And your, your whole, your stomach is just filled with dread the entire time because you know, that this is all going nowhere good. You're just not sure how. How is this all going to go so badly? And then, of course, it all does. And Kristen, uh, there's also Passing, written and directed by Rebecca Hall. I know it's been on a lot of best of lists because I've been personally meaning to watch it for several weeks. Uh, what should listeners know about the movie? Passing tells the story of two African-American women with light complexions in the 1920s and they've chosen very different paths in life. Irene is living in Harlem with her husband. He's a very respected black doctor, and she's working on behalf of bettering the lives of other African-Americans in her community. 
Meanwhile, Claire is passing as white and living in Chicago with her wealthy white husband. They were childhood friends, and by chance, they're just reunited. And at first, Irene enjoys having Claire back in her life, but it doesn't take long for things to get very complicated with each woman finding things to envy in the other's life and uh, to maybe even dislike about the other. I'm trying to find out the history of the blonde you've brought along. She's a girl from Chicago I used to know. Princess from Chicago. Things aren't always what they seem. Bobby Dan. Lots of people pass all the time. It's easy for a Negro to pass for white. I'm not sure it'd be so simple for a white person to pass for color. So it's a lot about relationships. It's about race. It's about expectations and what is the easier path in life. And it's not as straightforward as, you know, either character necessarily thinks at the beginning of the movie because we get a glimpse of what's actually hard and what's actually easy for both of them, not just one or the other character. I also understand that you both liked West Side Story. Um, Full disclosure, uh, as a Puerto Rican person, I did not love it, but um, go ahead. Can you you make the case for for why you did? (laughs) I grew up with the old version of West Side Story, uh, the one that came out in the early 1960s. And I remember even as a kid thinking, this is kind of offensive. Why do we have Natalie Wood, who is as uh, white and Anglo as can be, playing the uh, Puerto Rican title role in this? Maria, why? Why are all of these people in brown face? Uh, why does the fighting look more like ballet than like street gangs? Uh, why is this not more cinematic? Why does the film so often feel like it's just a camera that's set on a tripod while people dance in front of it? And I feel that the new version of West Side Story fixes so many of those problems. It tries to have a cast that actually, you know, is Latino to play the Puerto Rican actors. It tries to be cinematic in a way that, you know, obviously you would expect of Steven Spielberg, who is directing this. The new screenplay by Tony Kushner adds a lot more intricacy and nuance to the story, which was otherwise a little bit lacking in subtlety, a little bit lacking in intricacies, um, not necessarily acknowledging the realities of poverty and racism and urban renewal. I'm saying that in quotes. And so I feel like this movie does a much better job with all of that. Tonight, tonight, it all began tonight. I saw you on the Just a world, there's a star I, I just found myself captivated by it. And the music, the way the sound is mixed, uh, it's just beautiful. I did see this one in the theater and I felt fully immersed. I felt like this is what the movies were made for. But I would love to hear, Alana, your thoughts on 
why you didn't like it because I, you know, I'm, I am not Puerto Rican and I'll, I'll just own that right here and now. I'm Asian American. Well, I hear you on the tripod problem being solved. Visually, it's a beautiful movie. I mean, I love the opening, going over all the rubble in Lincoln Square. The dancing is great. The colors of the costumes, beautiful. Uh, but it still, for me, felt like a movie that was made from a white perspective. I don't want to spoil it for anybody, but there's a, a detective character um, above Officer Krupke, who's in the original. And as he's sort of orienting us in the film, we hear him basically give like the white perspective. And to me, it felt like the whole movie stayed with that the whole way through. Like Tony gets a lot more depth with his character than Maria does. And and it really just felt like it focused on the jets more than the sharks, you know? Um, and I guess it also, I couldn't shake the feeling that that it wasn't necessarily authentic. And I know that a lot of other Puerto Ricans who have seen the film um, also couldn't shake that feeling. I will say that I understand everything that Alana is saying. You know, I'm, I'm half Mexican. I felt like they made a pretty good effort to um, make that cast, if not entirely Puerto Rican, at least try to, you know, cast um, Latinx performers in the roles. And I thought that was that was a good thing. And I actually really liked that opening monologue from the detective, from the Corey Stoll character, because I felt like he was throwing a glass of cold water on the whole Jets nativist philosophies. And the, the line I love uh, in that, which comes from Tony Kushner clearly, is where he stares at them all and says, look at you guys, the last of the can't make it Caucasians. And I just thought that was such a great line and um, and really like got to the heart of this of this whole problem that, you know, look, you know, it's, it's gonna, it's gonna take more than being white to make it in the world from now on. And you guys gotta, you guys gotta face up to it. And I thought that was in, in one line, I thought that really brought the whole movie up to the present day and gave it a much, a much tougher, stronger feel. So I, I actually really liked that, uh, that opening monologue. Uh, Rafer, the epic historical drama, The Last Duel had a, a stacked cast. I think I recall Matt Damon, Adam Driver, uh, Ben Affleck all in it. I don't really know much else about it. Why, why did it make your list? Yeah, uh, I really am in the minority on this one. Um, I feel like uh, neither critics nor audiences really seem to uh, warm to this movie. And it sort of surprised me. Quick synopsis, it's, it's a true story uh, based on the last sanctioned duel in medieval France. Matt Damon plays this soldier named uh, De Carouge. Adam Driver is his longtime friend, Jacques Legree, which is a, a great name for a villain. And then Jodie Comer plays uh, the wife of uh, De Carouge, Marguerite. And one day the soldier comes home and, and his wife says that uh, Jacques Legree has raped her. And uh, Legree denies this, but the couple will not let the charge drop. And through sort of various twists and turns in the weird medieval legal system, it turns out that there's really only one way to settle this, and that is with a duel, a duel to the death. And there's a catch to this for the wife in particular. If the other guy wins, then she'll be burned alive for lying. A most unspeakable charge has been brought against you. Jacques Legree entered our home. He attacked me. The accusation is false. I am telling the truth. The truth does not matter. There is only the power of men. This should be settled.
quietly. I'm innocent! I request a duel to the death. If you lose, your wife will suffer dire consequences. One of us has lied. Let us let God decide. You do not believe me. I am risking my life for you. You are risking my life so you can save your bride. So the, uh, well, I was just about to say the stakes, uh, sorry for the pun, the stakes are very high uh, in this. And I thought it was just riveting. It's set up in kind of a Rashomon way where you hear uh, the soldier's story first, uh, you hear uh, Legree's story second, uh, and then you hear the wife's story third. And it's pretty clear that the, the wife's story is the one that is uh, going to be the truest to life. And I thought that was a brilliant uh, construction. Uh, the script was great. It's Affleck and Damon uh, back together again after Goodwill Hunting. They wrote the script, but they wrote it with Nicole Holif Center, who's a, a great filmmaker in her own right. Uh, Friends with Money. She did the screenplay for Can You Ever Forgive Me with uh, Melissa McCarthy. I just thought it was a really intelligent, frightening, and horrifying um, version of a rape accusation. And I thought it was great the way that you could see how some things have changed and some things haven't and you know what it means to be the accused what it means to uh, do the accusing the way society treats you uh, the way people split down the middle and who believes you who and who doesn't and even though you know no one gets burned alive anymore for it you they kind of do figuratively in some ways still the risks are still very great for women to bring these kinds of accusations and there was something metaphorical about that that I thought was really powerful. But I will tell you, it did not do well at the box office. I know very few people who are not film critics who have seen it. And um, I know very few people who are even aware of it. It kind of it kind of came and went, but I loved it. I, you know, it's, it's up, in my, up in my top five, my top three. Rafer Guzman is a film critic for Newsday and Kristen Meinzer is a culture critic and author of How to Be Fine. Thank you both. Thank Thanks, you for Alana. having us. Oh, Rafer, it's always fun to be back at our old stomping grounds at the takeaway, huh? I know, WNYC. Only only virtually. I really miss going into the studio there. Oh, me too. Those 5 a.m. call times? (laughs) (laughs) I miss those too, believe it or not. Uh, Anywho, reminder, we'll have even more of our favorite movies of 2021 after the break. So stay with us. You can spend less time staying in the know about all things gaming and get more time to actually play the games you love with the IGN Daily Update podcast. All you need is a few minutes to hear the latest from IGN on the world of video games, movies, and television with news, previews, and reviews. You'll hear everything from Comic-Con coverage to the huge Diablo 4 launch. So listen and subscribe to the IGN Daily Update wherever you get your podcasts. That's the IGN Daily Update, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Matt. Did you know that wombats poop cubes? Nope. Never heard that before. Did you know the unicorn is the national animal of Scotland, Ken? I didn't know, nor do I care. Neil, did you know that Liechtenstein is the only doubly landlocked country in Europe? Jeff, isn't that an American pop artist? Well, actually, it's both. If you want to learn things like that and more, join us each week on Triviality, a pub trivia-style game show podcast where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Listen in each week to answer general knowledge trivia alongside exciting guests from around the world. And we're here too. 
Join us every Tuesday for new hour-long episodes of Triviality, plus tons of extra theme content on everything from The Office and Lord of the Rings to science and geography. And sometimes we even do sports. Find us on all your preferred podcast apps and take part in the fun of playing bar trivia without the need to wear pants. Real mature, Jeff. Forget it, Neil. It's Triviality. Hey everyone, we are back and we're continuing the conversation we started on The Takeaway with three more movies we each loved. Rafer, let's start with you. All right. Uh, well, well, my first pick here is a rock doc. You know me, Kristen. I'm, I'm, a, man, mm. I'm a man of a certain age and I love a rock doc. <laughs> what can I tell you? <laughs> and uh, the one I'm picking is The Velvet Underground by Todd Haynes. And I'm also a big Todd Haynes fan, of course, if you know him from Velvet Goldmine and many other movies. Um, but uh, so he made this documentary on The Velvet Underground. I, I, how familiar, here's a, good, here's a good litmus test. How familiar, Kristen, are you with The Velvet Underground? Well, my first semester in college, living in the dorms, I had a roommate who listened to the Velvet Underground and Pink Floyd, and she wore a lot of velvet bell bottoms and smoked marijuana constantly. So that's what I know about them. <laughs> okay. Ah, uh, where was I? I would like to met her. Um, okay. Uh, yeah. Well, I, th- that's one reason why I actually think that the, that the Velvet Underground as a documentary could it could serve a purpose. On the one hand, I think if you're a music head, you probably already know a lot about this band and you've probably already made your decision about them. But if you, for, for the rest of for the rest of us, they're a band you've probably heard a lot about, but maybe not heard a lot of, like their actual music. Um, anyway, this is a, this is a very impressionistic documentary about this band. Uh, Lou Reed, lead singer, obviously, uh, Sterling Morrison, Mo Tucker, the drummer, and then John Cale, the uh, violinist of all things. And um, these guys come together in the 60s, and essentially they were, I like to call them a rebellion against a rebellion. Here was the hippie flower power movement going on. Everybody had their paisley shirts and their brightly colored tops and their and the bell bottoms as you were saying <laughs> and everyone's singing about you know peace and love and happiness and acceptance and the velvet underground are dressed all in black you know up to their necks and turtlenecks with the black shades and they're singing about drugs and death and despair and the inability to feel anything and they were like the absolute antithesis of the hippie movement and that was one thing that I always thought was really funny about them and this movie really gets to the heart of that here's a clip always was very clear that there's no difference between being a writer of the book and a writer of lyrics. The artist is not with society. He's different. I was interested in communicating to people who were on the outside. They were going to blaze a trail, which eventually they did. Well, I got to ask you, Rafer, sometimes concert films, when I don't really know the music, kind of make me feel alienated rather than on the inside. Is this is this a concert film? Am I misunderstanding? Is It's a documentary or a concert film, or is it both? It's not a, it's not a concert film. Uh, this is not Woodstock. Oh, okay. This is not, um, you know, The Velvet Underground Live, although uh, if, if footage of that stuff exists, I would love to see it. Um, it's really just about this band, how they came together, and really what they meant to people. I, I think 
some of the some of the fun stuff in this movie is how it sort of connects some interesting dots. For instance, Lou Reed was a big fan of Bo Diddley of all people. Mm. Um, you know the Bo Diddley beat. Dun, 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 yeah, dun, of course. Dun, dun, dun. And then John Cale, oddly enough, given that he was like a an, you know avant garde composer, was a big fan of the Everly Brothers. Really, and somehow. Yeah, and so somehow this comes together to to, to create this incredibly um, alienating, hostile music from the Velvet Underground. Not that all their songs were <laughs> like that, but this, they have this kind of streak in them. Um, you know, a little pretty depressing. You know, with Nico, the lead singer, this kind of you know frozen Germanic beauty with you know these eyes kind of staring about a thousand yards in front of her. They somehow make this music. And then it finds its way to these other people, like Jonathan Richmond, who is interviewed extensively oh. in this um, movie. And if you know Jonathan Richmond, he he basically writes what are almost children's songs. You know, uh, the oh, mosquito yeah. goes bitey whitey white. Like that's an actual Jonathan Richmond song. <laughs> and but he was a huge Velvet Underground uh, fan. He was like their biggest number one super fan at all their concerts. Got to know them. Became close with John Cale. So somehow you have these weird strains of music doing weird, unexpected things kind of throughout history. And that stuff's really fun. Um, so, no, it's not a concert film. And if the Velvet Underground are a band that you kind of only know, like you, Kristen, because you had a pretentious roommate who maybe turned you <laughs> off to them, it's a good place to start. And I would recommend it. Well, I will have to check that out. I do love all of the members' uh, individual careers. I will say that. I just yeah. never really got to know the Velvet Underground themselves very well. So uh, it seems like a good starting point. Right. Well, they were a long time ago. Yes. <laughs> long before you and I were alive, Rafer. Indeed, indeed. Um, okay, so Kristen, uh, what about you? What's going to be your first pick? All right, so my first pick here is Coda. Did you see Coda, Rafer? I did not see Coda. Oh, Rafer, you need I to see know. Coda. It, it is free on the... Apple Plus. It is right there for you. I know. It's one of the big hits of the year, uh, although uh, kind of polarizing, too, as I as I found on film Twitter. Yes. Uh, people <laughs> seem to have a lot of uh, opinions about the movie, but, but tell us about it. Well, Coda tells the story of Ruby. She's a teenage girl who is hearing while the rest of her family is deaf. They all work together in the family fishing business in Massachusetts, and they're incredibly close-knit. But when she joins the school choir and shows a gift for singing, Ruby feels drawn to new possibilities. Here's a clip. You're the, the girl with the deaf family? Everyone but you? Yeah. And you sing. Interesting. Are you any good? I don't know. Why did you run out of my class? I got scared. Of what? Other kids? Maybe. Or maybe finding out that I'm bad. Do you know what Bowie said about Bob Dylan? A voice like sand and glue. There are plenty of pretty voices with nothing to say. Do you have something to say? I think so. Good. Then I'll see you in class. Bob. It's an interesting idea to have the to have the teenage girl be hearing and sort of un, unless I'm misunderstanding what's happening here, having to kind of uh buck the normality of being deaf, of being non-hearing. 
Is that sort of what's happening here, given the premise? There is some of that, but there's also some of the, this is a tight-knit, old Massachusetts, you know, seafaring family. Mm. And to break away from your small-town life, there's that. You're leaving the business. You're going into the arts. What? We're a blue-collar family who's done this for many, many generations. So there's absolutely that. But there is also the, you know, decision to pursue something that is for hearing people. Being in the choir is not something that her family necessarily feels very included in. They try to support her in their own way, but they don't necessarily feel included in this decision. And in some ways, they feel very alienated by it. And what I love about this movie is it doesn't show any good guys or bad guys. It doesn't depict people who are deaf as feeble or as weak in any way. As a matter of fact, Marley Matlin, who plays her mother, is so sexy and so vibrant. And uh, Troy Kotzer, who plays her father, is wild about her mom. Those two are constantly having sex and going at it. (laughs) They're very funny. (laughs) Her brother's very down to earth. And in my opinion, I I really think it's much more nuanced than here's the able person and here are the disabled people. And, And of course, full disclosure, I am a hearing person. And while I do have deaf people in my family, I am not deaf myself. So I can't speak to how I would feel about this movie if I were deaf. But I know Marley Matlin and the rest of the cast, all of whom are deaf, are very proud of what the movie is and how it turned out. And they've made clear this is not supposed to be a universal story. This is just one family story and what they've gone through. Marley Matlin also has children who are hearing. Um, and just a note, CODA means child of deaf adults. And so Marley Matlin has her own CODA in her own family. But CODA also has one other meaning that doesn't get talked about a lot in the reviews or in the film. In music, a CODA is a passage that brings a piece to an end. So what's really happening in this movie is this girl is coming of age and she's not going to be a girl much longer. She's going to be a woman. And what path is she going to choose? And I just love this movie so much. I cried and cried and cried and then I uh, rewatched it all over again. And Rafer, I think you'll especially love all the music that's in it, including Marvin Gaye, uh, Joni Mitchell. It, it's just a beautiful soundtrack. Oh, that's great. I um, I heard, like I said, I'd heard a lot of good things about it. I heard a lot of um, objections to it, too. I don't think it was that um, it was from uh, from the deaf community necessarily. I felt like it was more kind of... I don't know, grouchy film critics or something that seemed to object to it being uh, too formulaic or too easy, or I don't really know what, but it seemed like there was some some polarization going on there. But I'm, I'm interested in it. Um, and I did know the other meaning of coda for uh, part of a, a passage of music that you know brings a piece sort of to its close, because I'm pretty sure coda is a, is a Led Zeppelin album. That, <gasps> That's how I know the. That's how I know anything in the world. If it, if, it, if it was on some sort of pop album, that's how I found out about it. <laughs> Everything Rafer knows about the world, he learned from pop music. It's completely true. <laughs> it's so so true. Well, Rafer, what about your next pick? Okay, my next pick. I I fear some backlash from you, Kristen. I don't know. I don't know how you feel about this film or if you've seen it. My next pick is The French Dispatch from Wes Anderson. Kristen? Well, I have to confess, Rafer, I still haven't seen The French Dispatch. You haven't seen it. it, I'm I'm embarrassed to admit how many movies I still have not seen as of today's taping. I haven't seen this. I haven't seen Licorice Pizza. I haven't seen Cyrano. The, The list is so long of movies I didn't see this year. I only saw 40 movies this year, which I think is the lowest number of movies I've seen in the last 
20 years. <laughs> 40 movies, 40 movies is not bad. That's pretty, that's pretty good. Um, I don't, I'm not sure how, how much ahead of you I am there. Um, but again, I haven't seen a lot of films too. I haven't seen, um, drive my car. I haven't seen the worst person in the world. Likewise. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> I mean, it's, yeah, it's a, it's a long, it's a long list of movies I have not seen, but I really did like the French dispatch, the technical actual title of this film is actually The French Dispatch of the Liberty, Kansas Evening Sun. That is the full title of the film. That's the full title of the fictional publication in this movie, uh, which is kind of like a, a magazine from, from, from France that is supposed to be read by people in Kansas, as if there were ever such a thing. I think this is sort of how Wes Anderson always felt about The New Yorker, which is what this magazine mm. is modeled on. It was this kind of a, it was this kind of uh, dispatch from the bit from this big fancy cultured city that he kind of idolized from his small hometown, and so that's sort of what he's trying to set up here. And basically, what this is is a, a series of vignettes broken up into sections: the the travel and leisure section, the uh, the, the I think it's called the politics and poetry section. They have very eclectic sections, um, and so each section is kind of a standalone odd feature story with some kind of. New Yorky figures that kind of come in and out. If you're a regular reader of The New Yorker, you'll recognize people like, uh, you know, A.J. Liebling, for instance, who will kind of float in and out, providing a little context. I won't run down every single story, but they range from a very odd story about an imprisoned artist and an art dealer uh, on the outside who's trying to get the public to see his work and uh, and the prison guard, female prison guard, with whom the artist has an affair. You know, there's a story of a, of a crazy kidnapping that all has to do with um, French food. It's, it's, a, it's a very, very long, long list of very strange, typically Wes Andersonian vignettes. Here's a clip. Berenson's article, The Concrete Masterpiece. Three dangling participles, two split infinitives, and nine spelling errors in the first sentence alone. Some of those are intentional. <laughs> the Kremens story, revisions to a manifesto. We asked for 2,500 words, and she came in at 14,000, plus footnotes, endnotes, a glossary, and two epilogues. It's one of her best. Sazerac? Impossible to fact check. He changes all the names and only writes about hobos, pimps, and junkies. These are his people. How about Roebuck Wright? His door's locked, but I could hear the keys clacking. Don't rush him. The question is, who gets killed? There's one piece too many, even if we print another double issue, which we can't afford under any circumstances. A message from the foreman. One hour to press. You're fired. So, Rafer, is this just a series of many, many, many short films, or is there an overarching story from beginning to end? What exactly is this movie? You, you could... Uh, argue that it is really a series of short films. Uh, the, fr the framing device of, the, of the, the, the French Dispatch itself is pretty thin, I would say, and that is in some ways a bit of a drawback to the movie. One thing I would say about this movie is that I admire it more than I love it. Mm. The, the filmmaking in it is really extraordinary. There's just, I mean... The colors and the editing and the lighting and uh, the composition and, you know, all these elaborate sets. And there are these moments where everybody will freeze in a tableau, but they're not actually frozen on film. They're just standing still <laughs> in, in mid-action. Uh, and so things are floating in midair like a bottle uh, will be floating in midair. And it's uh, very much like if you know the famous picture of... Dali jumping up 
with the water and oh, the yeah, cats yeah, yeah. being thrown at him. Do you know that picture? Mm-hmm. It, it's very much like that. It's this little sort of frozen moment in time, but the camera will, will pan over the entire tableau for like, you know, what seems like miles and miles of action. It's all very, very incredible. It may not move you emotionally that much. Although I will say there is a scene, the, the segment that I mentioned earlier with um, uh, the kidnapping and the French food. Uh, Jeffrey Wright makes an appearance here as this character who is clearly modeled on James Baldwin. Mm. And in this movie, to me, he's the one character that you really feel something for. And it's a really um, kind of a remarkably and surprisingly moving performance in this very mannered Wes Anderson film. But I thought he was just terrific. And his his performance, Jeffrey Wright's performance alone, is one of my main reasons for putting this film on, on the top ten. He's just great in it. And the whole movie is very entertaining and very funny. And again, if you're a film, if you're kind of like a, a real film lover, you just want to watch someone go to town and do a lot of amazing things on camera, hmm. this is your movie. Well, I was a hard core Anderson fan in the early days. I, I loved Rushmore. And Royal Tenenbaums, right? You know, I, I loved all those early movies. I loved how pretty and candy colored everything was. I thought that technically speaking, he just did a beautiful job. Um, but yeah, sometimes his movies, in my opinion, lacked something emotionally. So the fact yes. that Jeffrey Wright brings it, that means a lot to me because I love Jeffrey Wright also. I think he's fantastic yeah. in everything he does. Well, listen, if you can if you can put up with the rest of the of the Andersonia of it all. <laughs> Jeffrey Wright will deliver for you. All right. So Kristen, what's your next what's your next pick? Well, my next pick is something that we have actually talked about on the show. A few months ago we talked about this. And full disclosure, uh some folks have recently pointed out on Facebook that because of me they checked it out and did not like it. But I'm still listing this among <laughs> my favorite movies of twenty twenty one. Barb and Star go to Vista Del Mar. Yes, you're a big champion of this film, Kristen. I sure am. So uh, just a reminder, what the film is about are two best friends from Nebraska named Barb and Star. They're middle-aged. They have permed hair. They wear culottes. They travel (laughs) to Florida on vacation. And, uh, you know, the resort they meant to go to, maybe it doesn't go quite as planned. Maybe a few other things don't go as planned. Maybe they end up having weird affairs with people that they maybe shouldn't have affairs with, or maybe they should have affairs with. And maybe there is a bad guy, a villain, whose plot they get caught up in. It's not maybe, yes, they get caught up in her plot. Here's a clip. Hi! Mickey! You're like amazing. You're great. Wow. Miguel and I just got back from vacation. Girls, I might just pack up and move there. What? Where? Where, 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 did, you where did you go? It's this tiny little oasis on the coast of Florida. It's people like us, midlifers, who still like to strut past the pool and stop the party dead in its tracks with a tube top and full jewelry. Wow. I'm not kidding. I feel like I got a soul douche. There are so many gorgeous men there. We're talking Tommy Bahama from head to toe. Tommy Bahama. I'll drop off a brochure later. Oh, wow. Thank you. It won't be necessary. I mean, yeah, but it'd be nice to just see what it looks like. But what's the name of the place again? Vista Del Mar. Kristen, this is another film uh, that seemed to be very polarizing. People either just loved this movie (laughs) or they thought it was just a disgrace. And I feel like I feel like you're like a, you're like a real polarizer here, Chris. Oh you're choosing, yeah, you're choosing all these movies. Um, tell me what it is 
Tell me why you think some people have disliked this film and what it is that you like about it. Why do you think this film has rubbed some people the wrong way? I think a lot of people felt that this was just stupid. I'm just going to say it. They they just thought it was stupid because Kristen Wiig plays, you know, one of the best friends, but she also plays the arch villain. Uh, we have people who are playing roles that maybe uh, not everybody feels comfortable with, like Jamie Dornan of Fifty Shades of Grey is the romantic lead. We have musical numbers that kind of come out of nowhere. Every joke is taken way too far. (laughs) But here's the thing. I love that. I love that it decided what it was going to be. It committed to that thing all the way. And it just did not let up on it. By the end, I was laughing and full of good cheer it filled my heart with joy. It made me want to hang out with Barb and Star in Vista Del Mar or anywhere else in Nebraska. I would hang out with them anywhere. They they just kind of reminded me of my aunts and, <laughs> you know, those Midwestern ladies that I knew growing up in Minnesota with good hearts, with uh, optimism, yeah. and who are just committed to each other. And the ultimate love story here isn't between Jamie Dornan and either of the leads. It's really about two best friends. And I love to see a movie where two best friends, where that's the heart of the movie, where that's the love story, especially female friendships. We don't get to see that very often. True. Especially women over 40. When we get to see women over 40 on film, it's frequently like kind of real housewives where I'm pulling your hair and you're yelling at me and throwing a drink in my face. So it's just nice to see two middle-aged women who have good hearts and who genuinely love each other and just doing dumb things. So I would say, why is it polarizing? Because it's so dumb. And some people love the dumb and some people hate the dumb. But I love the dumb. I hear you. I loved it. I hear you. Listen, I think that's great. Embrace it. Be proud of it. You'll be a happier person for it. Absolutely. But Reefer, (laughs) what is your next pick? Okay, I'm going to pick what is a very, very, very close second to my number one film of the year. I'm probably going to I'm probably going to put West Side Story at the top of my list. Me too. But very 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 close behind it is Cruella, the Disney film, the origin story of Cruella DeVille, which I just loved. And you've seen it, Kristen? Yes, I saw it. Um you saw it before I did, but you did talk about it on the show. And one thing that yeah. you said on the show that really enticed me was you spoke of the costumes and how the costumes are almost like their own characters and how beautiful they are. And that got me to the theater to see it, and I was blown away. It is yeah. cinema with a capital C. Totally, totally. I think that's one of the reasons I really loved this movie. Quick backstory. Obviously, we all know who Cruella DeVille is, the future villainess of the 101 Dalmatians story. Well, franchise, I guess, at this point. And uh, this is her origin story. She's a a girl named Estella. Uh, She is orphaned. She comes to London. She wants to be a fashion designer. Uh, She falls in with uh, Baroness von Hellman, played by uh, Emma Thompson. I completely forgot to mention that Cruella is played by Emma Stone. Sorry about that. (laughs) And, uh, you know, Estella is kind of taken under uh, under the wing of the Baroness, who is very clearly a sort of Devil Wears Prada kind of character. Um, But the time that we're in here is uh, 1970s London, sort of on the cusp of glam rock and punk rock. And this kind of... uh, rivalry develops between Estella, the young the young maverick, and uh, the Baroness, who is the old guard. And Estella sort of begins to bring punk rock into the fashion world and kind of push the Baroness aside. And of course, underneath it all is this mystery about 
why Estella is an orphan, what happened to her mother, and how is she going to become this incredibly dark figure named Cruella Deville? Here's a clip. Who are you? You look vaguely familiar. I look stunning. I don't know about familiar, darling. Your hair, is it real? Like my ball? I like to make an impact. Right. What was your name? Cruella. Oh. Mm. That's quite fabulous. And you designed this? You did, actually. 1965 collection. Oh, no wonder I love it. It's mine. I fixed it. I loved this movie, Reefer. And I got to say, I was not just enchanted by the costumes, which are fantastic, but both of the Emmas commit so hard to the characters they're playing. Yes. And it's delightful to watch them. It's delightful to see them be cruel and catty and conniving and all of the other C words. It's just a delight to watch them commit so hard to their roles. It really is. And I, I... I guess I, I'm, I'm just so filled with admiration for this movie. It's so, it's such a great example of when Hollywood and when Disney does something right. And you've got this, you know, first of all, you've got a, this origin story that really could have failed very badly, that could not have worked at all, that could have been another sort of wicked ripoff, maleficent ripoff or whatever that could have really fallen flat. Um, but it's got this great script uh, that really, like, gets really deep into the character of Cruella DeVille and gives her a real backstory that you can really kind of get into. Um, Emma Stone is great. Emma Thompson is great, as you said. All those costumes, the director, Craig uh, Gillespie, uh, who did I, Tanya, another one of my favorite films from the last couple years. Mm-hmm. It just all works so well, and it's got these great moments in it. That great, great monologue from Emma Stone at the fountain, this symbolic place in her life, the fountain where she kind of turns the corner and becomes Cruella DeVille. Uh, it's just fantastic. The whole, the whole movie's great. Aside from maybe the few fake British accents, which <laughs> I can't think of anything bad to say about it. Other than that, I really loved it. I loved it from top to bottom. I loved it too. I did too. Okay. Kristen. Bring us home. What's what's your what's your next movie? All right. My next movie is something we also talked about on the podcast. The these last three movies we're talking about, we we discussed all of them on the podcast at one point or another. Yeah. This one is called Moxie. And uh, Moxie is a film adaptation of a YA novel. It is directed by Amy Poehler. It tells the story of 16-year-old Vivian, who experiences a political awakening when she befriends a more socially conscious and outspoken student named Lucy. Inspired by Lucy, as well as the stories of her single mother, who was a teenage riot girl back in the day, Vivian decides to start a feminist zine to empower the young women in her school as they contend with bullying and sexual harassment and sexism and all of the other terrible things that women just have to deal with in life. Here's a clip. Hey, Lucy. Uh, We have English class together. I'm Vivian, right? You sit in the back. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Look, I just wanted to say, ignore Mitchell. Why should I have to ignore him? Why can't he just not be a dick? He's an idiot. He has been since the second grade. He's dangerous. I don't think he's dangerous. I think he's just annoying. 
You know that annoying can be more than just annoying, right? Like it can be code for worse stuff. If you keep your head down, I'll move on and bother somebody else. Thanks for the advice. But I'm gonna keep my head up. Hi. See you in class. So Kristen, uh, you of course are the perfect age for this I particular uh, yes. premise, <laughs> as am I. Yes. But and but tell me, I mean, if you're if you are if you are younger, let's say, uh, than uh, than the Riot Girl generation, uh, what in this movie will will draw you in? I think that what will draw you in is just how fun and snappy it is, and the coming of age story of trying to make everybody happy and realizing maybe I don't have to make everybody else happy. Maybe I just have to stand up for what's right, which is kind of a journey that all of us have to go on in life, right? Because sure. from a very young age, we're taught to mind our manners and to not rock the boat and to make sure that everyone around us is you know, feeling good and not offended and so on. And there is a fine line between making sure everybody feels seen and to be kind to them and to make sure you're standing up for what's right. And it's great to watch somebody learn how to rock the boat and maybe make mistakes in how they rock the boat. And are they doing it in a way that's really just for themselves or are they doing it for the greater good? And so it's fun to watch that. And all of the music is so good. Uh, they introduce everybody to a new band in this movie, which is now a well-known band called the Linda Lindas. It's a mm -hmm. group of little girls who are all Asian and Latina who um, kind of sound like a cross between Bikini Kill and Slater Kinney. And they're just these cute little girls who wear like, you know, plaid skirts and concert t-shirts. They're such cute little <laughs> girls and they rock. They just bring down the house. They are so, so, so good. So I love this movie. It's it's not overly complex. It's not, you know, going to be an Oscar contender this year. But it's just good fun, and it's fun to cheer for people trying to do better in life, right? I totally agree. I totally agree. So let's just remind everybody again. Let's recap what our lists are. So, Rafer, I'll start with you. Your top movies of 2021 are... West Side Story, Cruella, Nightmare Alley, The Last Duel, The French Dispatch, and The Velvet Underground. Nice. And my top movie is also West Side Story, Rayford. I know. I highly recommend people see it on the big screen if they can. Please see it on the big screen. Uh, we didn't even talk about how great Rita Moreno is in it. I know. She's this new character that's not in the original one. She's so good. Uh, so West Side Story, Passing, Coda, Barb and Star go to Vista Del Mar, and Moxie. That's my list. All right. We're going to take one more quick break. But when we're back... Kristen and I will each name one movie of 2021 that disappointed us. We're back with one last question. What was the most disappointing movie for you in 2021? Ugh, Kristen? There were so many bad ones. Whew. So many just fell flat for me. And I'm sorry to say this, Rafer. I'm not going to name this my biggest disappointment of the year, but I'm just going to say The Last Duel let me down, even though it's one of your top movies of the you year. You didn't like The Last Duel. I did not. I loved... So many people didn't. I loved the idea of, you know, telling a story from three perspectives. I loved the idea of a movie that brought things to the present with the Me Too movement and so on. Yeah. I just don't think it was executed very well. And 90% of the speaking roles went to men. We didn't even get to hear from the protagonist very much. So... 
that disappointed me, but that's not my number one disappointment of the year. Okay. My number one disappointment was actually the Starling. Did you see the Starling, Rafer? With uh, Melissa McCarthy, it was like yes. a, it was like a uh, like a rom com. It, it... <laughs> no, I don't think anybody knew what it was supposed to be. Rafer, I is, see. is it supposed to be a drama? <laughs> is it a comedy? Is it a rom com? Yes. Look, here are all these comic moments of birds attacking people. Are we supposed to be laughing? Oh no, here's a guy who's checked out of his marriage. Are we supposed to be crying? <laughs> here they are in the insane asylum with the good hearted aide who is going to help you with art projects. Is this a story of transformation? Oh my God, it was all over the place. And I'm sorry I'm not giving you a real plot here because the plot is kind of muddled. But I will say in the trailer, what the trailer seemed to be suggesting was this is a marriage at a crossroads because perhaps a child died and the husband in the relationship checked out and the woman has to keep going because that's what's expected of her. Right. The wife is Melissa McCarthy. The husband is Chris O'Dowd. The two medical people who help them are Kevin Klein and David Diggs. Oh, yeah. I love the cast. Yeah, the cast sure. is so good. But it is really all over the place, Rafer. So, <laughs> so you saying I don't really understand what it was. Nobody does. I was really let down. <laughs> I really was. I wanted to love this movie so badly because of the cast. I didn't love it. I, I hear you. Um, I don't think I was. Ex- I don't think I was expecting that much from it. Um, so uh, I'm probably not going to wind up uh, checking that one out. Oh yeah, don't don't do it, Rafer. <laughs> All right. Well, for me, uh, I'm going to say my biggest disappointment would be Spider-Man: No Way Home. And here's what I'll say about that: I've actually really enjoyed the last couple of Spider-Man movies. I've really liked. <laughs> Yeah, I really have. I really think that when Marvel does it right, it really works. And and they do it right so much more often than DC does. I mean, like, I, I, I don't even know. It's, it's, it's Babe Ruth versus, I don't know what, some guy I never heard of. Terrible sports <laughs> analogy. I don't even know why I attempted that. I don't know anything about sports. That was a terrible choice on my part. But uh, I do think that the Marvel movies can be anywhere from really good, fun entertainment to, um, you know, something even a notch or two above, like uh, like Endgame and Infinity War. Two, those are two Marvel movies that I think really sort of were very ambitious and worked very well. Anyway, I thought the, the last two Spider-Man movies with Tom Holland and the director John Watts were like like a great combination of, of a Marvel movie and a John Hughes movie. They were, there was something very kind of teen and sweet and fun, and the, 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 all the acting was great. These young characters, uh, 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 Ned, his friend, uh, MJ, uh, played by Zendaya, his girlfriend, um, just really fun. And this new one just went for, I felt like, I, I don't want to. I don't want to spoil anything because the, it's almost like the entire movie is made of nothing but spoilers. So I can't really tell you what the <laughs> the plot is exactly, or what the even really what the premise is. But it it's basically a um, it brings back characters. This is not a, this is not a spoiler. It brings back characters from from previous. Spider-Man films that you will recognize. Uh, one, Doc Ock is in the trailer. Uh, the Green Goblin is in the trailer. That I'm not spoiling. But it just turned out to be like one of those hokey uh, special episodes from the 70s where they bring back guests from past episodes. Like uh, some, it just it felt like a, one of those corny Happy Days Laverne and Shirley kind of. <laughs> 
you know, oh, look who it is. It's this guy and it's that person. Oh, my God, and, and Mork and Mindy are here. Yeah, yeah. God, exactly. It's exactly what it was like. That's exactly what it was like. And um, listen, the thing has been a box office smash. It crossed the billion-dollar mark in the middle of a pandemic. People have loved it. Um, I gave it a poor review and the Marvel stands came after me on Twitter, but I <laughs> they mean, do not like you saying anything bad oh about their God. movies. Well, they, and they don't read your entire review. They just read the Rotten Tomatoes headline and then take time out of their day to go dump on you. <laughs> but you know, it just, I, I, I just want to say, I like the Marvel movies overall, generally speaking, and I usually expect more from them. And this, this particular Spider-Man, I guess I'm in the minority. It just didn't work for me. Well, I'm not going to see it anyway, because I have no interest in the Marvel Universe. <laughs> I know you don't. <laughs> it's just not my thing. Just not into the Marvel Universe. Yeah. Every movie in the Marvel Universe feels like that episode of Happy Days to me. And look, here are a bunch of characters that only insiders know. <laughs> if you've seen the last 40 movies, you'll know what we're talking about. Then believe me, you will hate Spider-Man <laughs> No Way Home. <laughs> But look, we've got a lot of other better movies to choose from here. We've got movies that uh, that people are raving about that you and I haven't seen that we should go out and see. There's all kinds of great choices, all kinds of things out there playing. Yeah, there are so many good movies out there right now. And Rafer, you and I are behind on them. We're going to go out and see them. We are. I know. We will. We will. <laughs> well, Rafer, this was so much fun getting the gang back together again. It's been great. It's been great. I've really missed doing this, and I'm glad we got a chance to do this. Thanks, Kristen. Oh, no. Thank you. Thank you, Takeaway. Thank you, listeners. And Happy New Year to you all. Yes. And that is it for this very special bonus episode of Movie Therapy. Reminder, we have lots more bonus episodes coming your way every other week, so keep an eye on your feed for us and for those shows. Until next time, everybody, I'm Rafer Guzman. And I'm Kristen Meinzer. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.